This is the Lunduke Journal of Technology podcast for Monday, August 14th in the year of our Lord, 2023. This is the Q&A show. This is the time when I don't get to pick the topics, <laughs> when it's all of you that throw a mountain of questions at me, history questions, tech questions, opinion, news, retro, various operating systems, all of it. Anything computer nerd related is on the table. You pile it in, throw a big mountain of it at me over on Locals, and uh, I just kind of pick from the, the most liked or, or just randomly pick some. <laughs> So we'll get into that. I want to do a few quick uh, little uh, addendum, addendi of what is happening in in and around the Lunduke Journal right now because it's these things are important. We must do housekeeping occasionally. Uh, the first is that this is a rare free show. If you are grabbing this from your podcast news feed from you know Apple iTunes or the YouTube or whatnot, this is the very rare show that actually comes out that's free for everyone. Most most of them are over on lunduke.locals.com, and there they shall remain. So go on over there if you haven't already picked that up. Um, one other thing I should mention is that starting today, at the end of the day today, Monday, August 14th, there will be no more new lifetime subscriptions offered. Uh, we, uh, it, we're just cutting it out. It, it's, this is it. This is the last time. If you want a new lifetime subscription, you're more than welcome to grab it. It's $119. Uh, I have a link in the, uh, the notes here on an article over on lunduke.locals.com where you can go and see all the details and see if it makes sense for you. It's, it's a, it's a pretty, it's a pretty friggin' good deal, but we're not going to offer them anymore. And part of that is that we're just simplifying the subscription options going forward. We're making it simple, uh, making it real, real dog simple. And so part of that is the lifetime subscription Boop, needs to go. Uh, so anyway, if you're not already on Locals, go over there. There's a lot happening right now. There's new articles coming out regularly, new podcast episodes. There's some bigger video shows that are hitting here and there throughout the month. Uh, live streams, comics, uh, the, all the good stuff's happening over there, so head on over there. All right, let's dive on into the questions, because that's the meat and potatoes here. Um, I'm just going to sort by likes today. I'm over on lunduke.locals.com. I, I asked everyone yesterday what questions they want to ask, and to like the ones that they think are the coolest. I'm sorting by likes, so we're going to go in popularity order. The first, the first question, the most popular question comes from Zib. Zib asks, which retro tech fad would be the best thing to make a comeback? MP3 players, Tamagotchis, Palm Top PCs, something else? Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. Uh, so you hit on one of them that, that I love. The, the, the palm top PCs were really only a big thing for a certain window of time. They really hit their stride in the 90s. There were some palm top PCs, like some of the Windows CE powered ones that, that trickled in into the early 2000s. But there was that, we had about, I don't know, six or seven years there where we had a bunch of DOS palm tops, um, some Scion palm tops, some Windows CE ones that were just, they were fantastic. There was actually a couple of Palm OS ones as well. And I, I love that form factor where you have a clamshell laptop style device, but it's so small that when you close it, you can slide it into a big bulky pocket, right? So for like a man in his pants, you know, you know, men pants have bigger pockets than lady pants. That's the weirdest thing for me. I, I, like, like my wife has, has pants where her pockets are like a couple of inches deep. Now, what the heck is that for? That's more like, so you can pretend like you have pockets. I don't even understand that. I've got pants where you could, you could put like a friggin' cantaloupe in my pants. Like it's, it's <laughs> that sounded weird, but their pockets are huge. You could just, you know, throw a whole IBM ThinkPad in some of my pockets. So, you know, if you got big pockets, they were great. And, you know, I used to wear um, a, a nice, like, blazer, a little sport coat everywhere. And the reason I did that 
was because I lived in the Pacific Northwest, and it was a little bit chilly most of the year, so I needed something, a sweater or something anyway. And if you have a blazer, as a nerdy guy, it gives you so many pockets. You have the you have big giant outer pockets, big giant inner pockets, little breast pockets. You just got like hidden pocketry everywhere. And so during the the 90s and the early 2000s, when you had palm tops and PDAs and cell phones and MP3 players and Tamagotchis and little portable video game devices, you had so much gadgetry that you could be walking around with at any given moment for a nerd. Man, those blazers were fantastic. Anyway... What I would bring back is absolutely the palm top PCs. Um, But honestly, it's not just the palm top PCs. I kind of want to bring back the entirety of the workflow, the the use flow of 1990s, like especially late 1990s gadgetry. There was something wonderful about it. It didn't all need to be connected to the internet. Very, very little of it was actually connected to the internet. You had your MP3 player that you loaded up by syncing to whatever your main computer was. Laptop, a, a desktop, a freaking iMac, whatever it was. You, you plug it in and you sync your MP3 player up, right? I loved that. Um, and then you go from there and you have your PDAs. Again, it, some of them had wireless connectivity. Some of them had 56K modems that you could use in little PCMCIA cards. Some of them had Ethernet cards you could put into them. But none of the connectivity was mandatory. You typically installed software, backed up notes, copied around databases and whatnot by plugging it in and either over USB or a serial port or some sort of a sync cable, you you charge and sync your devices. So your PDAs, your palm tops, uh, your MP3 players. I really liked that workflow because then my devices were each truly unique entities. And I, I, I know and I understand that the, the smartphones that I have in front of me right now are, are infinitely more powerful and, and infinitely more capable than the devices I had back then. I, I, I admit that fully. I mean, I can, I can literally do my entire job of writing articles, recording and editing video and podcasts and all of it entirely from an Android phone or an iPhone. It's a little bit easier if I connect up an external keyboard, but I can do it from those little devices. That's amazing. That wasn't quite as possible back with, say, a Palm OS PDA or a DOS-based Palm Top, right? Unless I was just writing and, um, I don't know, maybe using a, a dial-up modem to send my, my words to a publisher that it was not as possible to just do my job from those devices. And if I brought those devices back to now and started using them regularly in that way where they weren't necessarily connected online and I had to sync them to to my main computer, whatever it is, yeah, you know what? It wouldn't be as convenient as my smartphone. Just the same, putting the convenience of the smartphone aside for a minute, I truly do miss that workflow, that the way that it functioned, where each device was separate, where each device was was focused on its task, where each device was fully offline. I, I miss that. And the period of time when the palm top devices truly were doing great, and they, they never caught on hugely mainstream. The HP Jornadas that were Windows CE power did okay for a while. Um, the the HP LX series from, from Hewlett Packard, the little DOS-based palm tops, they did okay for a while. But none of them... None of them became huge runaway successes. Not like, you know, Android phones and iPhones or even Palm OS PDAs did. But just the same... I miss those sorts of devices. And and I still enjoy using the old ones today. They're still good quality devices. So if I could bring back one thing, it would absolutely be Palm Top PCs. And there's a couple of of Linux-powered 
palm tops that have come out here and there over the years, uh, recently, and they're somewhat interesting, but they they lack some of that some of that mystique, some of the magic that the older palm tops had. And I don't know if it's that the newer ones are more basically like fully fledged laptops with full Wi-Fi and everything else. I don't know if that takes away from it somehow. Um, I don't know if it's the fact that they have limited battery life. They don't have the, you know, 30 hours of battery off of a double A battery. <laughs> off of a double a battery that you could get on some of the old palm tops i don't know if it's that i don't know if it's a combination of things but i the the newer stuff just hasn't hasn't struck me like the older stuff does now if someone came out with a new palm top now running say linux or or free bsd or open bsd or whatever and i could use removable batteries and it had crazy good battery life, even if the performance was really low compared to, you know, any laptop or anything, I'd be interested. I, I would genuinely be interested, uh, but uh, I've yet to see one that really excited me. Uh, the next in this list of amazing questions comes from Bradford. Bradford says, in your estimation, why did the Linux journal go bust? Ooh. Well, that's kind of an interesting question. So Linux Journal Magazine, uh, for those of you who you know were not around, really was not just the first real professional Linux publication. And it was. It was the first one um, that really was pro. And, but it was also the longest running. And I was lucky enough to be the deputy editor of the magazine at the end of its life. I came on board... And it went through some tumultuous times. And it, it, the death sentence had kind of already been written. Because the, the Linux Journal gave up on physical publishing entirely and went to digital publishing, which is not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, I, I'm seeing that clearly digital publishing is a way forward that works. The, the problem is that you can't do digital publishing exactly like physical publishing and have it work. So, so for example, uh, the Lunduke Journal, what I do now, is a fully digital publishing thing, right? But it's not published like a magazine, right? You don't just pay your, your subscription and then once a month get your, get your PDF, right? If people are getting it digitally, they both, A, want things, want their news a little bit faster. They want their, their stuff kind of spread out over the course of the month. Um, and they want it to be a little bit more convenient. Uh, it's better to have some more community stuff oriented around it. Um, and since it's digital anyway, you might as well throw in some more multimedia stuff, some podcasts and whatnot, and you end up with more of a of a multimedia subscription service once you get to that point. And then, of course, like like what I do, you can throw in a monthly PDF magazine. But what what Linux Journal did is they just simply continued to produce a very high quality PDF magazine, like really high quality, great, great great layouts, great graphic design, the works. It was, it was a fantastic publication. But then they didn't really do any of the other stuff, right? They didn't, they didn't, they didn't custom tailor what they could accomplish as a digital publication. They kind of just kept it as a, as a PDF. And I think that there's, I think that that kind of sealed the fate because, they had to stop doing the print publication because the print publication industry has just been dying. It's been dying for years. It had been dying for years when, when the Linux journal stopped doing an actual print version. So that had to happen. They had to make that hard choice. There wasn't any way to keep it going and actually stay profitable. And that was terribly sad. It was really sad to see that happen. But they didn't make the changes that needed to be made. And I get why they didn't. They wanted to continue doing what they'd always done because what they'd always done was pretty magical. But they didn't make the changes that they needed to make in order to in order to make it a true success. Um, and, and, you know, that includes me uh, because I was there 
at, at the end and I could have pushed it into multiple other directions. And I, I did not, I wanted, I wanted Linux journal to continue being what it had always been because it was so amazing. And uh, I just couldn't, I couldn't see it changing as it needed to change. I think, I think the other, the other problem that really hit with Linux journal was timing wise. It was at that point in time when it failed, it was too late for print publications in the tech industry, especially like in the Linux side of the tech industry, to really do well, but too early for people to really truly ad- adopt the digital publication thing, like like what we've got going right now with the Lunduk Journal. Uh, I mean, I'm I'm benef- benefiting greatly from from people being ready for that sort of thing, for people saying, okay, I'm ready to pay for a, a fully digital publication that, that has a whole lot of weird aspects to it and all that sort of thing. Right. And so the Linux journal just, just, it was rough. It had, it had a lot of people, uh, not a lot of people, but it had, had full-time employees and, you know, it, it wanted to continue its business as usual and it just couldn't. And that was, that was terribly sad. Honestly, I think that the Linux and tech worlds are still worse off because of the, the, the death of Linux journal magazine. It was, it was one of the best, one of the absolute best publications that there was in the computing world, uh, from like the mid nineties through to, uh, you know, the, the 20 teens. It was, it was truly, truly phenomenal. Uh, one, one of the best. I, I'm very lucky to have gotten the chance to work on it when I did. Um, you know, if you, if you grab any of the last, you know, year or two of, of Linux journal, when you open up the first pages, there's a, there's a, a little, you know, Hey, welcome to Linux journal that, I, that I got the opportunity to write. I got to, I got to write those little, here's what's in this issue blurbs that those messages from the editor and, um, Gosh, that was, I mean, that was an honor uh, for a Linux and computer nerd to get the opportunity to do that was, was just truly phenomenal. Um, so it was, it, it was, it was a major, it was a major bummer. And, and at the end there, things got really weird because it, Linux journal kind of got bailed out by uh, a VPN company over in uh, England owned by, oh gosh, what's their name? London Trust Media, London Trust Media. And they they really did. They kind of bailed Linux Journal out and kept it going for some time. But I don't think they really had a an idea of what to do with it either, right? So they just kept it as business as usual and never really effectively used Linux Journal or knew what to do to grow Linux Journal. And so, you know, it, that, that's just the way it was. But it, it was sad to see it go. Um, um, Ooh, uh, another one, another one from Bradford. Bradford asked if you could wave a wand and bring back one feature from the PC XT or AT, what would it be? I don't even need to think about this one twice. PS2 ports straight up. I want the PS2 port to come back. I miss being able to type on a keyboard and have an instantaneous response. Now, a lot of you were going, what the heck are you talking about, Lunduke? You're crazy. I type on my keyboard and I see an instantaneous response all the time. And I'm going to tell you right now, if you've got a USB keyboard, you do not see an instantaneous response. I know it seems like you do, but if you put, if you put, let's say a Linux machine with a USB connected keyboard, which includes the majority of, of laptop keyboards, and you bring up nano even just a simple terminal text editor like nano and then you go over to an old 286 or 386 with a ps2 keyboard plugged in running dos and you load up edit and you hit that key at the exact same time it shows up faster on the other machine and that's because it's really the the 
the key press that you're pressing has a whole lot less to do when it's connected over the PS2 port. It just does. USB is a fantastic and terrible system, right? Because it does, you do tend up having to hop through multiple buses. The signals that you're sending have to be converted a few times. And while that process is wonderfully fast and does work great for the vast majority of things, it is so much slower than a PS2 keyboard. And I, when I moved from PS2 to USB, it was so aggravating to me when I was typing. When I was typing up articles or, or emails, I was noticing that it, I just was getting aggravated. And I couldn't figure out why for the longest time. And it's because I wasn't seeing that instantaneous response that I was used to. I'm telling you right now, if you go spend some time on a PS2 keyboard, not PS2 connected to a USB adapter or something, but PS2 into a PS2 bus, you'll know what I'm talking about. It is, it is a night and day experience. It, it, the, the difference might be minor. The difference might be measured in milliseconds, but you notice it, especially after a while. You really do notice it. And if you're like me and you have most of your computing where you're using more modern hardware, which means like your keyboards are on USB and whatnot, but you still have some older computers that you jump back and forth to and you use those old PS2 keyboards, the difference becomes unignorable. <laughs> I would bring back PS2 keyboards so fast. I miss them so much. <laughs> Um, Carter, Carter asks a while ago, you mentioned having a strong opinion about how, how to design an office suite. <laughs> what are they? <laughs> oh boy. I do have strong opinions on office suite designs. Oh, so strong. Oh, so very, 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 very strong. Um, so for a little background here, I worked on Microsoft office for many years um, specifically Microsoft Office on Macintosh. So uh, from Office 98 uh, on Office X and a little bit on to the release that came after with that, but I, I, I left before the, the next version that came after that, uh, the second version for Mac OS X. Um, and that left me with very, very strong feelings about the UI design, the document structure, everything relating to, to Office Suites. And while I have many thoughts, I'll leave you with just a couple of quick ones. Uh, the first is that, that an Office Suite should be uh, simple. Um, it should be dog simple UI, really simple UI. Uh, most office suites nowadays do not get this right. Uh, LibreOffice, the current Microsoft Office, Apple Pages, and uh, the Caligra suite from the KDE folks, they're all cumbersome. They're all trying to reinvent the wheel too often. They spend too much time trying to come up with new paradigms and, and way and ribbon UIs and, and, and toolbars broken out into these little shelf components that sit on the side of your, your windows and all sorts of just crazy things. No, bad UI designers, knock that off. The, a good office suite a good word processor, a good spreadsheet program has a toolbar, a set of toolbars along the top. And those buttons are small dog and they are, and everything is all visible all at once. And you can fit them all, all right there. Everything else is in menus up top. That's it. That's all end of story. Um, I also, that said, am a huge fan of customizable toolbars. So you should be able to go in and turn on and off the toolbar features you want. So if you don't ever care to see indenting or or modifying your margins or any of those sorts of things, you should be able to go into a settings menu somewhere and turn off those those toolbars so you don't have them there. That way you just have the toolbars that you want they should be simple, small, square buttons. That's it. That's all. No ribbons, no giant floating pallets, no swoop-de-doos and whatnots. No, 
simple, small, up top. A word processor, a spreadsheet program, they should be light and they should be fast. They should not be auto-completing. You, these should not autocomplete. These are these are for typing stuff out. Now, the exception to that would be inside of a spreadsheet. Um, there are a couple of instances where you can do uh, uh, repeating things and, and whatnot. Um, there should be programmability in an office suite, especially, especially in a spreadsheet program. But it's beneficial that the spreadsheet program has the same programmability as a word processor suite, a uh, word processor, and that they can communicate with each other easily. It doesn't matter what the language is. Um, I, I worked on uh, for Microsoft Office, I worked on programmability for both Apple Script. Visual Basic for Applications and a C library that all essentially use the a the same API but modified for each language so it kind of made sense so that anyone from any of those programming tool languages and others if they were willing to use the C API they could make a bridge to Python or or whatnot um, could interact with Excel and move data back and forth between a Word document. And I think that that's that's a critical thing when you're dealing with huge amounts of data and you want to create um, charts that get exported, where you want to create whole Word documents and reports that get exported from your spreadsheets. All that needs to be able to be done, um, but it, it doesn't need to be as complicated as VBA has made it. It can be much, much simpler than, than what VBA is. I, I've got a whole series of thoughts on how that programmability should be done. Done because it can be done in a very simple way, but still provide the ability to bring data back and forth between a word processor, a presentation program, and a spreadsheet program. The other thing I have feel very passionately about is there is a, in my opinion, a fourth part of an office suite that is all too often overlooked nowadays, and that is the visual database. Uh, this used to be a more common thing, uh, Microsoft Access, FileMaker Pro, and many others, but having a a way where you can design a form and create a visual card-based style database structure. It's simple. It's never going to take the place of, say, a, a giant SQL database or the like, but it's incredibly handy, and it's something that's, that's difficult to replicate using a spreadsheet. And I, there are certain certain use cases where having them is really beneficial. And those those systems should also have that same API, the same language, the same API consistency of programmability between all four of the applications. Uh, those, those are some of my my own personal thoughts. Also, the file format needs to be 100 percent, 100 percent readable, right? text readable. And whether that means that it's uh, adhering to some sort of JSON or XML or some other open standard format that may or may not be a good idea, RTF, HTML, whatever, um, it needs to have the ability to be read by a, any program that can read text, even if a lot of the data has to be encoded because there's binary data in it. It needs to be in, in by and large editable from a text editor. And, and there's so many reasons for that, for importing, for exporting, for checking uh, stuff into source control and doing uh, version changes, because version changes on an Excel spreadsheet is important, uh, those sorts of things. So I have a lot of thoughts on, on office suite design, <laughs> very, very strong opinions. And no, I know of no office suite that exists nowadays that adheres to what I think an office suite should do. <laughs> Um, uh, Zach asks, what TV show or movie technology should exist, but doesn't exist? Oh, uh, oh, I, huh. You know, I, I mean, uh, huh. That's a really good question. So many things 
exist nowadays that were only dreamed of in sci-fi from the 60s and 70s you know mobile communicators and there's been so many articles and books written on like the the technology of star trek and 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 how it kind of came to pass and how it inspired you know cell phones and satellite technology and and many of the computing devices that we have nowadays and i don't know that <laughs> I don't know that we need a lot of it. <laughs> I don't know that we need to go a heck of a lot farther. Like if we're just looking at computing style technology, I kind of in a lot of ways feel like maybe we already shot a little bit past what we as a species are capable of using in a healthy way right? Like as a general rule of thumb, like our, our smartphones in front of us, tablets and, and whatnot, they're amazing, right? Like the amount of communications we can do, the amount of data we can transfer, the, the ability to look up all this information, to do all this weird AI stuff, to do the video chats across the globe. I mean, it's, it's amazing. It's amazing. But there's so many psychological problems that have, that have come about because of our heavy reliance on and usage of these technologies that I don't know that we as a species are prepared for it. Whether we're talking about our, our crazy usage of social media to, um, to our, our ability to look anything up at any time. While that seems great right? And that was a sci-fi thing from long ago, like eventually we'll have handheld things that we can use to look up any fact in the universe. Okay, it's basically the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy combined with a, a little handheld, you know, a scanner device from Star Trek, right? Like it's all those things all rolled into one plus a communicator. And while that sounds awesome, and it is pretty darn nifty, it also takes away some things that make us fundamentally human, such as, do you remember before, this is, this is only going to really apply to the older people among us. Do you remember in the before times when we used to go to say um, a pub or a pizza parlor and we'd be sitting around with our other nerdy friends and talking about something or sitting with our family members around dinner. You remember that song from that one movie with that one guy? Oh yeah, what was that? What was that? What was that one movie? And everyone can't remember it all night long and eventually it comes to like one of you at three in the morning the next day. That experience is being slowly taken away. And you may say, well, so what? Well, that's a fundamental part of being human, right? It's just like getting lost. I've talked about this a lot in the past. Getting lost is an important part of being a human. It's okay to get lost sometimes. In fact, it's great to get lost sometimes. When we were kids in the 80s, boy, did we get lost. I mean, people just got lost. We had no idea where we were. And we had to find our way to places. People would give us a direction like, okay, uh, drive up Route 89. Okay, I got that. And then take the third exit. Okay, what was the third exit? Okay, I got to count the exits. And then uh, and then turn left at the tree that looks kind of like uh New Jersey and then uh hang a right at the red the red uh the red mailbox that has uh, a picture that looks a little bit like your Aunt Edna on it. Like okay. And then and then you get lost and you're in the dark and you're on a gravel road and you're like where the heck am i am i about to get deliverance right now and those are kind of amazing experiences and those are part of what fundamentally make us human and they give us they help our brains grow they help us process things they help us experience i think what are truly important emotions and Becoming bored, getting lost, not knowing the answers to things, being fundamentally confused. Those are important parts of being human. And I feel like we may have, we may have gone too far. We've stripped away so many of those experiences from even kids nowadays are, are often given smartphones where they don't get those experiences anymore. And I, I miss that. So do what TV show or movie technology should exist but doesn't? Honestly, I, as far as computing technology goes, I'm going to say none. We've already shot maybe a little bit too far. 
I feel like we need to back up just a little bit. Because realistically, looking at movies and TV shows, it's very rare that there's a piece of technology that, that's, that hasn't been invented yet, that hasn't been put into widespread usage yet, that gets put into a movie and, and the movie plot is like, isn't this wonderful? It all turns out great. There's no apocalypse. The robots don't kill us this time. Like, it's always, it always goes bad. So let's just dial it back a little bit. Let's enjoy the computers we've got and let's figure out how to actually incorporate them into our lives in a healthy way now, because we haven't figured that out yet. And I feel like that's got to be our next step. I feel like it's just got to be. Um, ooh, okay. Greg asks, eight was great. 16 was pretty keen. 32 was super cool. And 64 was to die for nice sweet rhyme so where is 128 why don't i have 128 bit dual core intel mega beast tower with 512 gigabits of ram yet um 640k ought to be enough for anybody greg so you know <laughs> i you know i i i agree there was that period of time where we we seemed to be leaping from 4 to 8 to 16 to 32 to 64 and we were just jamming forward at, at a crazy breakneck breakneck pace on on adding new bits and having wider pathways in our processors and our bus architectures and we do we do kind of seem to have hit 64 bit and then put the brakes on a little bit and, and, and I think part of that is that we haven't figured out the use case for a lot of that as yet, right? For making the jump from 16 to 32 was an obvious one. It just like 4 to 8 and 8 to 16 were obvious ones. We needed to be able to address more RAM at once. We need to be able to boot, move around bigger chunks of data and address bigger spaces all at once. Like, okay. We had a use case for them. It, it was simple stuff like I want to be able to handle a much bigger, higher resolution image, whether it's put it on the screen or modify it or editing videos with it or whatnot. I want to deal with big, giant pieces of audio and, and things that are just fundamentally much larger and it becomes simpler and potentially faster, depending on how it's implemented, to do it as those numbers of bits increases. And so when we hit went from when we went to 32 bit, we hit at this moment where most things became possible right? Moving from 16 to 32 bit was a massive jump forward in that regard. And an argument could be made that that was probably enough. However, there are use cases that we came up with where being able to address more memory than that was beneficial. So the move to 64 was worthwhile so we could fund that development. The move to 128 bit for the vast majority of use cases, we haven't even scratched the surface of what we can use in 64-bit machines at this point. Now, I know, I know there are use cases, but realistically, realistically, most things that we do right now can be done incredibly efficiently on 32-bit machines, right? So like I have right now, I am recording this this podcast in Linux on a 64-bit machine. The technically, this could be done extremely well on a 32-bit machine. Technically, this could be done with some workarounds, but I I could be made to work just fine on a 16-bit machine. We go as far back as 8-bit and things are going to get a little dicey. But on a 16-bit machine, it would work. On 32-bit machine, it is no problem at all. So a 64-bit machine for recording this podcast is already overkill. And, and the same goes for the video editing that I do. While I don't, I don't push the envelope in terms of video work, the video work that I do, that I do do, <laughs> can be done quite well on a 32-bit machine. 64-bit provides some benefits, but not many. And so 128-bit, there's nothing I get out of that. In fact, in fact, in theory, we could be looking at performance degradation in some cases in a 128-bit in machine. 
not significant ones, not ones that really are going to change a whole heck of a lot. But realistically, it just doesn't provide a whole heck of a lot to us. Now, as as we go forward, the combination of software bloat, which is probably going to be the driving factor, and more people wanting to address ridiculously huge amounts of RAM at once, which is probably going to be something maybe AI driven is going to push forward a necessity for 128 bit being more common. But until then, I mean, 64 bit is, is a little bit ridiculous already. <laughs> uh, Stu. Oh, hello, Stu. Dear Brian, as you know, I'm an advocate of Linux and open source in K through 12 education. Uh, for many, a lot of you may have, have seen articles I've written on Stu in the past. Stu is a member of our community, but he also is a teacher in K through 12, and he sets up Linux clubs and computer clubs at these schools, and has done a huge amount to get a, just a ton of kids using Linux, refurbishing laptops for Linux, and just all sorts of stuff. So virtual high five to um, I've done a fair amount of work towards the goal of bringing Linux into schools, including starting Minnesota's first two school Linux clubs. That's right. He didn't just start the first Linux club in Minnesota. He started the first two of them. <laughs> but alas, I am only one man and I cannot be everywhere. That is a shame. What do you think it will really take to get Linux into schools in a big way? Best wishes, Stu. Uh, P.S. I'm starting at a new school this fall, and Minnesota will be getting its fourth school <laughs> Linux club. Oh, that's fantastic. All right, so what gets Linux into a school in a big way? Re so if you look back into the, the, the 80s and into the 90s, Apples and Macintoshes really got into schools in a big way through a variety of programs that were extremely smart of Apple to implement. Uh, it wasn't just providing deals to the schools, but it was providing curriculum and curriculum-based software to the schools. So, so Apple could send a person to an elementary, middle, high school, what have you, with a computer or 12 computers, set them up and say, here's software, here's some teacher's manuals to go with it, and here's some student curriculum that your teachers can use out of the box. Um, and, and some of those things included standard things that we have on Linux already. Office suites, um, nowadays web browsers would be included and the like. But where it really started to get interesting, where it really started to shine was when Apple started pushing early Macintoshes with HyperCard. And not just the software itself, but the teacher's manuals and whatnot that went with it. So you could just plop in front of your teacher, who sometimes weren't not software developer savvy, we're not computer literate in many cases, and say, here is a lab of Mac pluses running HyperCard. Here is step-by-step -step instructions with pictures and easy to follow details that every kid in the class will be able to follow. And here's how you can help them to do book reports and research projects where they'll go to your library, they'll check out books, they'll do a, a research topic, and then they'll go into HyperCard and they'll create a presentation. And what was so cool about this system is the kids worked on this presentation and it was, in, in a way, it was like part PowerPoint slides, but it was also interactive. So it tricked the kids without ever even knowing they were doing it into learning some of the fundamentals of computer programming logic to move, how to move from card stack to card stack to create little bits of functionality, images that would change and text that would fade into, into appearance when you clicked a button. You could create, the kids could create their own quizzes based on their research that they could share with other students in the class. So in the end, what these teachers had was an entire year of curriculum 
if the school invested in Apple technology. And because of that, then all the teachers wanted to have Apple Macintoshes at home. And some of the the kids would go home and say, well, to their parents, what did you, what did you do today? Well, I was working on this Apple Macintosh doing HyperCard. And it was very exciting. And the parents were like, wow, my kid's actually excited about learning. I'm going to buy them a Macintosh now. And this is some of the ways that in those years, the Macintosh spread the most effectively. And then the schools would pick it up. The schools would begin using the Macintoshes for their administrative work because they already had a bunch of them. And they already built an Apple Talk network to help do all of that stuff. So the, the schools were basically tricked by, into providing this Apple-focused infrastructure. Now, obviously, not every school did this. A lot of schools went a lot of different directions. Uh, Microsoft had their own programs to try and get schools using different things. There were even some some schools, even some middle schools and high schools that were very Unix-centric, believe it or not. Um, but one of the things we're missing on the Linux side is twofold. One is the piece of software that elementary, high school, and middle school students can use and learn and teachers can use and learn who are not really computer programming people to do all those things that HyperCard facilitated with the big Macintosh surge that happened across the school systems. Um, something like HyperCard, but more modern, but also extremely simplified would help with that. But then on top of that, the curriculum, the blessed, official, step-by-step, you don't have to do any investigation into it curriculum that mirrors a lot of what Apple, and to, to a lesser degree Microsoft too, provided back in the late 80s and, and into the 90s. That is something that's really missing. I, I, I've talked to the, the leadership of the Linux Foundation about this several times about how great it would be to get stuff into schools more. And I've, I've shown them people like, like what Stu has done to get these Linux clubs up and going and to get kids to be more, com- not just computer literate, but Linux literate and how amazing that is for their futures. And plus the benefits that that can, that can see within their communities, like, you know, refurbishing laptops with new versions of Linux, Linux Mint and whatnot, and getting them out into the community for free or low cost. Those are amazing services but there's this there's this gap where while there is training materials out there and while there are some good books and there are some good tutorials there what we're really lacking is this ready to go turnkey plop the book plop the files plop the software right in front of a teacher and say you don't need to know anything pick it up turn to day one and start reading this to your kids, have them read it, and that you will have a computer curriculum. You can integrate this computer curriculum into your social studies, your history, your English, etc. programs without having to disrupt what you're already doing. You can just weave it into the fact that you're reading, um, uh, you know, um, I don't know, uh, 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 Mark Twain or any other, any other authors, right? And say, okay, we're going to read Huck Finn right now and do a book report on Huck Finn. Well, instead of just a book report, we can, we can send the kids to the computer lab and they can work on this. And then that also gives the teachers some downtime uh-huh, because the kids are all working in the computer lab, which teachers love downtime. There's a lot of things like that we can be doing, but we haven't done it. And a part of the reason is that there's not a lot of money in it. Um, Apple was able to do it because Apple controlled the hardware business and the software sales business and the support sales business. And so providing a lot of those materials free or low cost to the schools provided Apple with a direct path, if not immediately, then very, very quickly to significant revenue. Whereas on the Linux side, we are a bunch of enthusiasts over here, some volunteers over there, some enterprisey folks that don't care about schools over here, and then a couple of hardware and software companies here and there, but none of them are all that big, and none of them have experience in the school side of things. What I would love to see 
is a company like uh, System76 or Framework or, or one of the other kind of Linuxy hardware and software firms to come in and say, and say, you know what? Here is a low-cost turnkey computer setup. Here is an operating system that will work on most of the hardware they already have anyway. And, it, and then here is our support system. And then here is our stack Here's our software, here's our, our, our books, Here, here's the full curriculum and the teacher's manuals and everything that are geared towards teachers, by teachers, for teachers. That's what is needed. Uh, I know we're off deep into to teachery woods here, but I, I think it is a really important thing, and I think it is very viable, but no one has, has bitten it off. No one has decided to take it on. I think System76 is probably one of the companies that's the most properly set up for it. And I think it could be a huge win for sales for system 76, but, um, they haven't done it. (laughs) I would love to see them do it. Um, but, uh, they haven't done it yet. All right. Uh, let's see. I got time for one more, right? Yeah. I got time for one more. Um, this comes from Rob. Rob says, what computing device operating system applications would you want as your one and only device? If you won't be able to replace it for 15 years. Bonus points if during the middle five years you are stranded on a desert island by yourself with that device and a solar charger, but no internet, no satellite communication allowed. If I'm going to go my only, my only thing, my only device, you know what? I'm, it's, if I can be assured that it's not going to break and I can be assured that it is repairable. I would want to go with a fairly small laptop because I still want to have a keyboard. I like having a keyboard. I mean, part of me would want to go with some like a nice palm top or something like that, but I like having a keyboard. So I'd probably want to go with a small laptop if I, if, if that solar charger can keep up and I'd probably be running Linux on it because as of right now, I can set up Linux disconnect it from the internet, have it not get any more internet access. So if I'm stranded on that desert island, I'm okay. There has lots of stuff that allows me to download archives of software, books, web pages, all my media, the works, so I can have every video game, book, song, everything, TV show I could ever want, all on my singular device. Plus, when I get off that desert island, I can go right back to work, recording shows. (laughs) Technically, five years on a desert island would be a good show. So if I have a laptop with a webcam, five years on a desert island, that's going to make for some entertaining entertaining, uh, uh, video podcasts after I get out. Lunduke's five-year descent into coconut-fueled madness. (laughs) <laughs> that's, I mean, that's probably the way I'd go, right? Like, I'd love to be able to say a really cool PDA or the like, but realistically, a nice, small, efficient laptop with a decent webcam on it, running Linux, <coughs> you can't really go wrong with that. All right, everybody, we're running out of time. Uh, thanks for joining me today. Again, this is this is one of the few free episodes that we do. Go over to lunduke.locals.com. Make sure you're signed up over there so you get all the shows, all the articles, all the comics, all the random weird posts that I and all of the community makes on a regular basis. You don't want to miss out. All right, everybody. End podcast.